What's up, fellas? We got Clay on the Once a Runner band, you know? Oh, it's one of the greatest, like, sports books of all time, and I'm no longer a runner, but... Have you gotten to the, the 400 in the cabin in the woods scene yet? Not quite. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm probably got like 70 pages left. I can't wait. It's epic. Um, yeah. Uh, I had a big, I had a, I also watched Without Limits, the Steve Prefontaine movie this weekend. Big running weekend for me. Shocking how much Billy Crudup looks like Steve Prefontaine. I know it's so long ago, but I would have loved to hear what he did for training. You know, he looks like a like a solid runner in those in like the scenes. Normally, you can tell like these guys. You watch; it's like my number one pet peeve. Yes. You watch people run, and you're just like, "Man, you're slow as shit!" Like <laughs> you're trying to look fast, but you're slow as shit. Um, but he does a good job. You know, you'd be great for this GQ series they do actually that does really well, which is where they bring in an expert to break down. Um, certain scenes in movies they have like lawyers break down criminal procedure uh procedurals and they have like to have you break down running scenes would be great i feel like you he's know done I, it he's done it for tom cruise in mission impossible tom cruise is actually a very good runner yeah like <laughs> he's 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 now that he's old like and he's slowing down he's like exaggerating things to make himself look fast even though he's slowing but he's actually a a, a good runner you know who's the one of the worst scenes i've ever seen who's that Matt Damon in the Bourne movies. Oh. How come? There's this one scene, I think, in the first Bourne movie when he's running on a beach. Oh, God, it's just horrible. Like, you're trying to sprint and your heel is just pounding into the ground. It's He can't run. I, I feel very confident that that is one action hero that we could all run away from. Um, okay. Productivity. Let's talk about it. So I have this thing that happens to me, I'd say at least once a week, which is I look down at my to-do list and I go, I have too much to do and not enough time to do it. And I just, this sense of like overwhelm and feeling like time is moving more quickly than I can keep up with the tasks that I have to fill it. It's like, um, I think I'm actually taking this from like a Groucho Marx skit or something, but you're like on a conveyor belt and the tasks on the conveyor belt are just stacking up and you like can't get them all done. And this happens to me like once a week. And again, maybe this is my own experience, but we have friends of the podcast and people who've written about this a lot. Derek Thompson and Cal Newport, I think probably writes about this the best. And Helen Peterson, Oliver Berkman, they all write about how this seems to be the sense of having too much to do and not enough time to do it is a affliction of the modern workplace. So I think maybe it's not just me, but I'm curious and we can talk about why this happens. I think some of it's communication overload, right? We can now be contacted all times of days. Boundaries of work and non-work are more porous than ever. I think co- that was the case before COVID, but COVID definitely ramped those up now that everyone's working from home and whatnot. Another thing is like we work in the content creation business. In the era of social media, your work is never done. You can always make another Instagram. You can make another TikTok. You could send another email. You can write another newsletter. And then on top of that, and this is something that's not new to the modern workplace, but like urgent stuff comes up all the time. And some of those urgent things are important as well. And so it's just this constant, all these plates in the air. How do you keep them all spinning? How do you not feel like they're going to come crashing down? Big preamble, but I'll kick it to you first, Steve. First off, of course, I experienced this. I'm human. 
Like this is the human condition, Clay. You're not special. Sorry. I appreciate um, it. But but I, I think it's important to say that because it's part of our like biology and psychology. And if I can nerd out a little from the science standpoint, I think there's a, a lot of different things that are, are going on. I'm just going to throw out a, a bunch here that kind of get at it. First is that we know that when we look at productivity and giving effort, having a sense of control allows us to give effort. What does the modern world do with all these different tasks and people responding in a different million different ways? It makes us feel like we have no control over anything. So when we feel like we have no control, we say, yeah, what's the point? It's like, what the hell? What's the point? And we just give up. So we lose hope. We give up. So I think number one is like losing a sense of control. I think there's also the fact that, you know, biologically, we were essentially meant to start things, but often not finish them. And there's no greater understanding of this than if you watch a baby or toddler who just starts things and then abandons it and finds something else to do. Why? Because that's what our biology primes us to do, because it's important to explore the world, right? We want to get started and then see, eh, is this kind of worth it or not? And if it's not, we go find something better to do. But do you do you think the sense that this is a, a particularly modern affliction? I mean, I think it's the evolutionary mismatch thing. Mm. Where like all of these systems were derived for, you know, you, the three of us sitting around a campfire, you know, and like our choices are to like go find some food or play with some sticks or whatever it is, you know? But now, again, I'll go back to it's on my my mind because I've got an eight month old daughter. But like now she has so many things she can explore and toys to play with. And in fact, there's some research that shows like if you if you sit down like three toys on the carpet and let her play, she'll play with those toys and be engaged longer than if you set down 10 toys. Mm -hmm. So it's like even at that age, like we're meant kind of designed built for like, Hey, let's focus on a couple of things and explore that part of in our environment and get that and, you know, see if it's worthwhile versus the deluge of stuff that we have to do. And I think that, you know, for us, we're no different than the kid who maybe not even 10 toys. We've got a hundred toys to yeah. sit down and play yeah. with. And that's so why we struggle. We're not built for infinity. Like our math isn't built for infinity. Our brains aren't built for infinity. And I think that there's a Goldilocks effect here where it's good to have freedom and it's good to have things expand. But when things expand too much, it completely overloads our brain. And this is true for the ability to get stuff done. It's true to date on an online app. It's true with the amount of calories we consume. It's true with the amount of quote unquote friends we try to maintain digitally. Like anytime things expand to infinity and there's no constraints, we struggle. Now that's not to say that uh, good old days are you got 12 people in your tribe and you have to date one of those 12 and you're constantly looking for food because it's scarce. There's so many positive benefits of abundance. It is why uh, up until the prior generation, life expectancy has just linearly increased. Or not, excuse me, it hasn't linearly increased, but with each preceding generation, 
lives longer than the one prior to them. Um, but now you look at so many of the physical, psychological, social ailments facing us, and they're really problems where there are just no constraints. I mean, the world is approaching infinity. And part of this is, I feel like the modern world just did more noise, more stuff. And part of that is on us to create constraints about what of that noise we interact with, whether that's, you know, okay, I'm going to spend less time on social media, or I can only really have like six close friends. I can't have 12 close friends, right? Or I can only have my family and then three close friends. That's all sort of, those are all choices we can make personally. But if you work a job and your boss is trying to squeeze every last bit out of you and leaves no slack in your life, like, and we, we work in a world where email is just, the more you email, the more email you create. Like, how do we, how are we supposed to rectify for the fact that we aren't made for infinity? And yet so often the context with, within which we are working approaches infinity. I am going to beat Steve to it and use a sports example. And I don't know if this is true in endurance sports, but it's definitely true in, uh, in powerlifting and strength training. And I believe the first time that we heard this was from Dan John, who's an old timer strength coach. He talks about keeping the main thing, the main thing. And what that means is that if you've got a training session and the main thing that day is deadlift, that's the main thing. If you're feeling great, high energy, do all the auxiliary lifts. If not, just do the deadlift. The next day, the main thing might be the squat or the bench press or the shoulder press. Do the main thing. Don't get lost in all the minutiae. In strength training, we call this auxiliary stuff. The the core work and the bicep curls and the triceps and all the single muscle exercises. Yeah, they're nice to have and you should try to do them, but they're not the main thing. And I think that how to think about productivity in a world of infinity, whether it's someone with a lot of autonomy, maybe you're your own boss, you're an independent contractor, you're creative, or you are the boss, or you need to communicate this to your boss, is you just can't have too many main things. And everyone needs to identify what the main thing is. I mean, I can't tell you at the company level, how many companies have like a list of 18 priorities and then none of them get done instead of having the discipline to say, hey, these are the two lifts we're trying to improve over the next two years. So I think it really comes down to giving yourself a constraint and then having an attitude where the main thing is the main thing. And that's how I approach my day. Like every day I've got one main thing I want to do. And if I do anything above and beyond that, it's just extra credit. Like it's gravy. Uh, but all I have to do is the main thing that day. And, and that tends to work most of the time. I'll give the uh, endurance coaches perspective, which is, you know, spot on with what Brad just said, but in training endurance athletes, here's a lesson. When we look at periodizing training, so deciding what we're focused on, uh, generally we follow the principle of you're either building something or you're maintaining something. So during a period of time, you're, when you're building something, you're emphasizing that. You're saying, oh, I want to build you know, maybe my uh, long run. So like that becomes the thing where you're saying, I'm going to make this the focus and try and get a little bit longer every week or like a little bit faster in that long run. Like That's the thing. Everything else is maintaining, right? You might do some strides to feel fast, but it's not a big thing. It's just like, hey, I'm going to throw this in so I don't forget it. It's the same approach we have here. I use the same approach that Brad just outlined. Like when I'm building something, that means I'm emphasizing it. That means it's the main thing. That means like 
I still might do some of these other tasks, but they're in maintenance mode. Meaning, you know, as long as I get to them once or so a week and I don't totally neglect everything, it'll be okay. And I think you just have to be, you know, kind of really strict on, on what those things are, because you can always kind of focus on and get one thing done. <laughs> what you can't do is try and get five things done. And often what happens in productive productivity world is we start doing, I'll say the maintenance things or the auxiliary stuff first, because they're easier to do. It's a heck of a lot easier to sit down and do, you know, two minutes of abs and say, oh, I got my core work than to do the main session. And the same applies to, it's a heck of a lot easier to sit down and reply to some emails and say, oh, I got some work done instead of write the chapter of your book. I think that speaks to the importance of having a system. And I'm curious to get in the granular details of what your guys' systems are. Because like something I think Cal Newport is great on is systems level thinking. Cal Newport, if you guys aren't familiar, is a computer scientist at Georgetown. He has a book coming out called Slow Productivity in March. But he's great about talking about developing systems, daily, weekly, monthly systems to be able to get things done. So that instead of waking up every day and feeling like you're drowning in a flood, you have a sort of like water irrigation system that can divert all these different floods into the right eddies and pools and rivers, whatever metaphor you want to use. But it takes a lot of work on the front end to create those systems. It's like building, uh, you're shaking your head, Brad. So like, I'm curious what your guys, what your systems are and how you think about refining them or, or making sure they're reevaluating them if they're not working. I want to start by saying that I can only share my experience and what works for me. And I recognize that um, as a writer that runs a small business with the two of you and two other people, it's a very different situation than someone that might work in the yeah. corporate world. Uh, so hopefully people in the corporate world can, can still take something from it or at the very least find it interesting. So I don't really have a complex system. Like I'll walk you through right now. I am starting to draft the very preliminary manuscript for my next book. And I've identified that that is the priority until the end of this month. And I simply say, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to work on writing it until I lose steam. And then when I lose steam, I'm going to go to the gym. And then when I come home from the gym, I'm either going to go back to writing it if I feel like it, or I'm going to take care of emails and social media and all the auxiliary stuff. And as long as I do that auxiliary stuff twice a week, nothing slips too much. So here, here's my work. And it has changed because we have, a, to set the stage, we have eight months old, as I said. Uh, we have help uh, two days a week, which is primarily when I get most of the stuff done. Uh, my wife works as a teacher, so she's gone during the middle of the day. Um, so I'll give you the non-help days because I think they're the most interesting. My daughter takes a nap at 9 a.m. every morning. We're very fortunate. Most of the time, it's an hour and a half or more. Sometimes it's up to three hours. I didn't call Brad back because she was sleeping good this morning. So, you know, no interruptions. It's nap time. Stay away, Brad. Um, but I just crank on the main thing during that time. And I think it's a helpful focus mechanism because I'm like, man, I got an hour and a half, maybe two, maybe a little bit more, like, let's go. And I, I, my phone goes away. I just, I just write or whatever the main thing is there. What that also means is again, right now, my daughter takes a afternoon nap, hour and a half, maybe a little bit more. I call I save that for the, what I call the optional stuff. 
Meaning sometimes I go back to the main thing. Sometimes I go to respond to emails. Sometimes I create content. Sometimes I say, screw it. I'm worn out. I'm going to read a book or like do something that's tangentially related to my work because like reading is related because it's how you spark ideas. Um, but that's always kind of the, the second level thing. The other part I think of my other system is I, I try and I try and be very deliberate on what I want to be world-class at and what I want to be good enough at. And so, for example, I want my books to be world-class. I want the writing in it, the, or the, the stories that I'm telling, the information I'm conveying to be the best that I can do at that period of time. So I spend a lot of time on that. My social media, I'm not trying to be world-class at. I'm trying to give good ideas, like world-class ideas, but like, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. So that becomes the good enough. So what is my level of good enough for that? And just being okay and making that as efficient and as simple as possible. I'll spend an hour or two and just like come up with a bunch of Twitter or Instagram posts to create content so that I don't have to think about it for a month because it's all kind of created. And that way I take, you know, I take that off. I will also say that like sometimes good enough for me is not good enough for the world. And I just kind of accept that. So for example, I'm like the world's worst email responder. And I would say like, I'm lucky and fortunate enough in my job that it doesn't, it doesn't impact it that much because you guys know, and if there's something that's really important, you'll call. Um, but what I found is that, you know, in a previous work, I had to respond to a lot of emails when I was coaching college, because you have to respond to meets and, you know, recruits and all sorts of stuff. And it feels like life or death if you don't, because someone else is going to respond to this recruit and get them and stuff. But what I've come to realize is a lot of stuff that we think is urgent actually isn't. And I would, I would challenge people to see if you think like responding to X, Y, and Z email or like always being on, et cetera, is actually urgent or a false sense of urgency. So I think getting clarity on, on that is is also, I guess I would call it part of my system is knowing the stuff that like I should take, you know, is actually urgent versus the stuff that is like, whatever, let it go. One thing that jumps out to me about what both of you said is that you seem to have a sense of enough of like enough is enough. Cause what often happens to me is I have that morning chunk and I, I actually have, I maybe because of working with you guys, I've gotten much better at being like, I'm doing my three hours on the main chunk. I do. Thanks to you, Brad, when you gave me the idea of like daily practices, I'm now like, I'm trying to do three hours of focused work on one thing in the morning. And when I, so I set down, I, I write a list of like what a is. And if I knock a out before three hours, I go to B. If I knock B out, I go to C. So I start that I run a timer. Whenever I hit a wall, it could be 80 minutes, could be like two hours and 15 minutes, could be a 45 minutes. Then I do my meditation and I come back to it and I try to get all that done in one chunks, so like three hours of work and the meditation. Then I work out. When I come back in the afternoon, I'm like, yo, it's 1.30. Like you can't not work the rest of the day. And some days I don't have the energy. Maybe I was up at six. Maybe I got, you know, four hours of work in and I got an hour of working out in. I ate some lunch. I come back at 1.30 and I'm like, I, I have to fill the day. And it's this, it's this sense of, of, I guess it's anxiety, maybe it's discomfort, however you want to call it. But I'm like, I have to work more. And 
that is usually what like will throw my day off. If then from one thirty to five or whatever, I'm not, I'm using scare quotes here, productive. I will characterize that as a bad, wasted, unproductive day, even though I got a lot done in the morning. Here's what my strength coach says, Zach and Kyle, and I really think they're the best at what they do. And maybe this applies to life, maybe not. They essentially say that, look, if you're going to train four days a week, the goal is on those four days to hit your main lift, the main thing, as frequently as you can. Then the auxiliary, you do what's there. Mm. And if more, if it's only there one day a week, then yeah, maybe we need to adjust some stuff. But if it's there two days a week and the other two it's not, that's fine. Just train for a decade and you'll be great. And I feel like I'd give you the same advice. Like if you're hitting your three hour thing, that's the main thing. Yeah. Two days a week. Hopefully you have a good afternoon. But if the other days you don't, I, I get it. I don't like those days at the gym where I feel like I'm kind of going through the motions and I leave 45 minutes later. I'm like, did I even do this auxiliary stuff? But it doesn't really matter as long as I'm doing it enough to like stay in touch with it. Yeah, I, I th- I'm in agreement with Brad. And I think I used to have that kind of apprehension as well, especially I felt bad because some afternoons I do jack shit and I'm like, you know, my wife would get home and she worked for like nine hours with, you know, five-year-olds going crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I got a lot done in the morning. And then in the afternoon I sat around and twiddled my th- thumbs. Like you feel bad because it's like, you know, but I, I think what got me over that is realizing that, again, to use the running analogy, what matters is not how many miles per week we run. It's our ultimate performance. When I was running a lot, I might know that I'm going to double, you know, meaning come back in the afternoon after a good morning session, like double two, three, four days a week. But I get to choose those two, three days a week. Like some days it's going to be like, you know what? I'm not going to double. I'm trash. Like I'm just sitting on the couch and watching TV and binging out. I am just wondering if someone who's listening to this from a perspective, like an emergency room doctor, if they're like, what are you guys talking about? You know, no, it's a different, it's a different, it's a completely different, it's a completely different kind of work. And I think that whether it's a first grade teacher or an emergency room doctor, um, it requires a different kind of fitness and writing is a certain fitness and being an emergency room doctor is a certain fitness. And um, I think being an emergency room doctor is a lot harder. In Cal Newport, who you mentioned earlier, has written about this a little. I think there are certain jobs where the main aptitude or skill is like very deep, creative, associative thinking. And for those jobs, I think it is extremely hard to get more than like, let's say, four hours out of yourself in a day. I think there are other jobs where you are much more like an endurance athlete. And the goal is like just to pace the race really well and run it day in and day out. And I think that is like a a, a grade school teacher has to be like essentially like an ultra marathon athlete, like Courtney DeWalter. Like you come back, you come back. And I have no doubt it's 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 challenging, but in a different way. And then I think there's these jobs like um, an emergency room doctor or a surgeon where you're kind of needing to do both at the same time. But there's a reason that surgeons are only in the OR twice a week and emergency room doctors work that 12 hour shift and then they have a day off. Um, So I really think like in an ideal circumstance, you kind of know the work that you're doing, you know what kind of fitness it requires to be productive over the long haul. And then you don't compare yourself to people with other kinds of work. This is, uh, this is reminding me a lot of our recent 
podcast with Damian Warner. And just the idea of like, of how he talks about after he does his decathlon event, he, you know, he, that he's worked so hard for once he has the competition, he can take up to like two months off. And it's this idea of like not being, of being sort of securely attached to your, your, your athleticism or also your work and just being like, okay, this time off is rest and recovery. I actually need thinking of the emergency room doctor. Even it's not separate from my work. Like it's not work and non-work. It's all sort of feeding the same cycle. You know, I'm going to use the track analogy since you brought it up, but have you ever watched a sprinter workout? Yeah. (laughs) So, so it's like as a distance runner, it's the most foreign thing ever. Because you like watch them, they take forever to warm up and then their workout again, I'm generalizing here, their workout might be like five by 40 meters, right? And there's freaking like, you know, 10 minutes of standing between the 40 meters. And as a runner, you're just sitting there like nothing is getting done. This is, (laughs) this is like the weirdest thing ever, but it's like specific to what they're trying to accomplish, right? To use Brad's analogy on endurance athlete and ultra endurance athlete is there to reach their goals. They need a different kind of work than the, the miler who's going to go smash 20 by 400 on the track with one minute rest. It's a different type of training. And I think that is, that is Mm. the difference when we look at, whether it's a teacher or emergency room physician or a writer is too often we get stuck on the time component or the volume component. And we forget that it, that's not it. It's like the interaction between quality and quantity. And in terms of, you know, uh, intellectual work or cognitive work, it's, you know, how much creativity do you need? How much connection association does your brain need to have? How much deep focus work do you need? How much rest periods do you need between things? And all of those contribute. Which is the definition of fitness. It's like your ability to thrive in a given environment to get a goal. So I'm curious, like one of the things that I notice in my own life is like just how much dumb life shit I have to do. And I shouldn't, I say dumb, but I shouldn't say dumb, but like, it's like, friend had a baby got it got to get a baby gift oh my like health insurance is running out got to find insurance forgot my password to my insurance so i tried to get in i got locked out and i got to call the insurance people get in my insurance like all this just life stuff that piles up and i like to think of it as the stuff that's at the very bottom of the to-do list that just never gets done and maybe again this is a me problem actually but i, I mean does that stuff pile up for you guys like that that's another thing where i'm just like God, I I want to keep the main thing the main thing, but if I don't get health insurance, you know, I'm screwed. Or if I don't like file my taxes, and those are very specific events. I don't have those every day, but I do find that there is a lot of stuff that is urgent and important, and it can get in the way of the stuff that's not as urgent but is important, like long term projects. I can speak to the email thing for Steve. The best route, and what Steve does is you pretend that you have an assistant that is responding to all your emails for you. And I think Steve actually believes he has an assistant that's responding to his emails, but there is no assistant. Listeners, I'm sure I'm sure 10% of our listeners have emailed Steve and not heard back. You're welcome to the club. It's nothing against you. You know, I I but I I admit to that, you know. I I try and convey that that like you email something, it's probably going to get lost in the fodder of way too many freaking emails. 
Um, but you, you know, the, 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 to answer Clay's question actually, and honestly is of course that stuff happens. I hate, I hate life stuff. Um, but as I said, that prioritization wrong that I talked about of like responding emails, like reading books, et cetera, I try and set aside time where I'm like, okay, like mm -hmm. this is, this is, this is the get shit done time period. And I try and put it in a time where my brain is fried anyways, where I'm not going to have the motivation to like do anything that I actually kind of want to do. So it could be like a Friday afternoon where I'm just like, all right, let's look at the bills or like, you know, do the taxes or whatever the thing is that I, I, you know, don't really want to do, but I, I have to get done. So that's it. And in these things, for whatever reason, they tend to fall into a very predictable, um, predictable basket. So it's like getting your passport renewed, um, yes. going and mailing like these eight books that I promised people I'd send them signed books from two years ago that like, I still haven't gone to mail, uh, going to get like a sport coat tailored, like going to the Honda place, 15 minutes away to get new wipers. So I, you guys are laughing because like, there's just a universality around these things that like you'd think it's climbing Mount Everest, but no, it's just getting new wipers from Honda. But these are the things that for whatever reason, we just don't do. Um, and maybe one way around this is I'm saying it, you know, like is to have like one day a month where there's no expectation of anything other than like doing all this stuff. It's like the, 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 the odds loose or the loose odds and ends day. All right. I feel like we got a lot done in that conversation. You guys see, do you see what I did there? I do. It's, and it's, they're and laughing it's, heartily. And it's, and it's in the afternoon. So it's during the <laughs> yeah. time where we normally, we should record this in the morning. I bet it would be a better podcast. <laughs> there you go. Although we'd, we'd all probably be too like rigid to, to do anything funny or say anything interesting. Here's here's the advice. After Do Hard Things came out and you go on the world podcast tour of too many podcasts, you know when I scheduled all the podcasts? Two to five in the afternoon. That's right. Like yeah. podcasts, you get yeah. stuff done. Yeah. You know? Feel good. So Clay, maybe it's just podcast afternoons. Just there we start go. recording random stuff. All right. Well, if you guys have feedback, if... Uh... You are an emergency room physician and you want to reach out to us, don't email Steve. Uh, call, call our voicemail, 646-893-9503 or email me clay.growtheq at gmail.com. Clay.growtheq at gmail.com. Do it um, whenever you're batching your emails and getting them done. But yeah, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Steve and Brad. This was actually great. I feel like I got a lot of insight into how you guys operate. That was fun for me. So we'll be back on Monday with the coach up. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon.